My name's Sarah Frick, and you're listening to Are You For Real? A podcast all about being real. Like, really real, not just cute Instagram real. Like, real. Welcome back to Are You For Real? with Sarah Frick. Today, we are sitting down with Kanae Miller. Um, and Kanae has is a, is a woman of many facets. But one of the things um, that I got first introduced with Kanae is that she owns a studio in town called Transformation Yoga downtown. Um, so can I tell us, this is like the most generic question. Tell us about yourself. <laughs> tell, how about we start with the many hats that you wear? Cause okay. you do. <laughs> um, I hate ask, being asked this question. Okay. I can talk about all the things yeah. except myself. So, so you're um, a mother, you're a wife, you're a daughter. <laughs> I am. I'm a mother, a wife, a daughter, um, a veteran, um, a woman, a black woman, a studio owner, a teacher, a friend, um, and most important to me is like, um, just being there Mm -hmm. for people. Um, that's like one of the, my favorite roles. Um, so yes, I explore all of those things and let's see, um, randomness about me. I like to read books. I'm actually an introvert. So I like to I actually saw that on your story. I caught your story the other day and I was giggling to myself because I'm the opposite. Yeah. (laughs) I'm a super introvert. I like to be amongst nature and books and um, binge podcasts of all sorts and books. So yeah. Oh, and TED Talks. TED Talks. I like TED. I love TED Talks. But I I don't like to watch or I don't like to play them like while I'm driving because then I want to take notes and I can't. Right. So then... That I'm kind of conflicted, and then I have to listen again, and it just it's too it's much. Not the, it's not the same as the first time, so. Yes, <laughs> I love TED Talks too. I actually um, I don't watch a ton of TV because like because I move around a ton, mm-hmm. so that's actually something that grounds me, and I don't feel like I've wasted my mind on something that is not of importance. So if you have any good ones, I'd love for you to send them my way. Mm. She's yes, like, okay, hold on, so do you have an many. hour? Like, where <laughs> do we start? <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Let's talk, I, 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 you, I think you told me you were a veteran a while ago, but mm-hmm. that, let's, can we start there? Sure. Because you're from Colorado, right? I am. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you were born there. No, I, I was um, actually a military brat, so I was born in Germany. Oh, wow. Um, when my father was stationed over there, my mother was also a military brat, so mm-hmm. she was born in Germany. Um, two of my other siblings were born in Germany and then the other two were all born in, um, Colorado. So I grew up in Colorado. That was my dad's, um, last duty station in the army. Um, and then when he got out of the army, he went air force reserve to finish out the rest of his enlistment and he was a police officer. Um, so it was very interesting growing up in Colorado because, um, I just, I'm interested in all sorts of things. Colorado is a very outdoor engaged. It used to be like number one for fitness Mm -hmm. and outdoor sports and all of the things. So, um, I grew up loving those same things. We would always go to garden of the gods and the red rocks. Um, that's so cool. And so, yeah, actually moving to the South was more of a culture shock for me because I'll never forget. I was driving in Georgia and I got lost and I called my mom and I was like, mom, I'm lost. And she's like, (laughs) Honey, find the mountains. I was like, there are no mountains. <laughs> She's like, well, what's to your left? Trees. What's on your right? Trees. <laughs> so no matter what direction you turn, there's nothing but right, trees. It's flat. Right. Yeah. And just lining the highway. So 
Needless to say, there's no way to figure out your direction right. in the South when you don't have mountains. Right. So I miss the mountains, um, but then I also don't miss the snow at all. Mm-hmm. So I would take the heat over the snow any day. Yeah, I think I would too, even though right now I'm sweating profusely. <laughs> um, so when did, so you went to school there and then you enlisted? Mm-hmm. Um, I finished high school there. I enlisted... Let me back up a little bit. So I finished high school there. I got accepted to my number one um, school choice, which is HBCU in um, Atlanta, Georgia, Clark, Mm -hmm. Atlanta. At the time when I found yoga actually was in high school, my parents um, had a really rocky divorce. So my mother is, my mother was an oncology nurse um, and and educator and she specialized in palliative care. So folks towards like the end of their lives, Mm -hmm. Um, she really loved supporting them. And then my father was, like I said, a police officer. So it had got to the point where the tension and their deeply rooted dislike for each other's mm-hmm, jobs mm-hmm. Um, got to be too much. So they end up um, getting a divorce. And during this divorce, I was the oldest child at home at that time. So it uh, got super rocky. Um, we were going, like being juggled back and forth between my parents' homes. Um, my father's department got involved several times. And I ended up um, kind of, I don't want to say shared custody, but like really taking care of my younger brother and sister mm-hmm. a lot. Um, and this is at 17, you know, where they're like, you're about to graduate high school. You have to know what you want to do with your life. And I'm yeah. like, how am I supposed to figure that out? Because I'm already an adult figuring out all right. of these things. Um, and so <laughs> this might be too, like, TMI. But, it's it's um, are you for real. <laughs> Go. So I was, um, I used to do gymnastics track and play basketball. <clears throat> and um, my gymnastics team, we used to always laugh about two things, vibrators and <laughs> levitating with yoga. And so I happened to work at a YMCA. So after like the, the season was over, I was like, I want to keep, you know, keep going. And um, I was like, well, you know, working at a YMCA, you get free classes. So I'm going to try this yoga thing out. And I'm very structured type A personality. Yeah. I don't know if you can tell. So, and so wait, that was this, you're 17 right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so um, I, I went to this yoga class and my teacher was an old lady. And by old, I mean, she was like 67, completely gray hair. But I remember her being like just so strong and gracious. Mm-hmm. And so I took her core, her class and I was like, oh, this is great. And then I got in touch with my breath in that very first class and it was like all of the traffic, all of the noise in my head just stopped. And I was like, oh, people have this all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, this is people's normal. Yeah. Oh, I like this thing. Yeah. So I just kept practicing yoga after that. Um, and so eventually I ended up leaving Colorado because I, I joined the military, be, or I joined the Air Force Reserves because I knew that if I told my mom that it was my first choice college, um, no matter what, she would have made it happen for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I witnessed her do that for my older sister that went to college in Iowa. And so... Um, just knowing that I had been through a divorce, I still had two younger siblings she was caring for. I couldn't bring myself to do it. So I was like, mm, military is an option. They'll mm-hmm. pay for college. So I joined the Air Force um, went and did all my training for do you have, a little were over you 18 then? a year and a half. Um, yes, ish. I was. Ish. <laughs> so yeah. when you're um, like at 17, you just have to have a parent that signs. So, so Greg Dixon, we interviewed him. He did the same thing at 17. His mom signed yeah. for him. My father signed for me and the recruiter happened to be his friend. So they picked my job together, okay. which was interesting. Um, <laughs> so I went into the military and then I was like, okay, you know, I can pay for school this way. When I went back to Colorado with that being my duty station, um, I worked, my job was in the military was a medical assistant. So I just did the same thing on the civilian side. I worked at the um, Air Force Academy. And then um, I ended up somehow taking on five jobs because in Colorado, (laughs) 
there's not much to do at that age. Right. Um, and also stay out of trouble. Right. So I worked at Coors Brewery as well. They have their own oh, um, yeah, like yeah, medical yeah. facility. So I worked there. Um, and then I was like, you know what? I, I've always wanted to be a lawyer. I knew that since second grade. I wanted my own briefcase. I wanted to wear high heels and tell other people what to do. I like that. Me <laughs> same, same. So I, um, I was like, okay, it's time for me to like get my foot in the criminal justice door, see if this is really what I'm interested in. Um, again, like my father was already a police officer. I had an aunt that's a police officer and two aunts that are um, lawyers. So it wasn't far, like as far as service and, and being engaged with other people to serve. Um, but then I had to find a department that would then take me at this point at 20. Mm-hmm. So I was like, great. So um, I just Googled and two departments came up. There was Palm Springs, California and Macon, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And I ended up in Georgia because the cost of living in Palm Springs was just ridiculous. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I was like, OK, well, I have to have, you know, benefits. I have to be able to protect myself, cover myself, pay for all of the things. Um, and so I ended up leaving, I think it was September, and I moved straight to Georgia and joined the Macon Police Department. Oh, my gosh. And that was... So are you... St- I know I know whoa. nothing about, like, the Air Force or anything. Mm-hmm. Can you fly a plane? Is I can't. the stupidest no. question I've ever had. Um, so <laughs> everyone asks us that question, okay. you're fine. Cool. So most people are like, you're in the Air Force, so you fly. And yeah. It's like, yeah, no. Not okay. all of us. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> um, my job, I specifically... So, like... The base has a hospital, and that's basically what I did. Okay. Like in a like a regular medical assistant at a nurse office or doctor's office, and the only difference is when when war happens, you now become like the combat medic person. Um, And so, let's see, getting to Georgia, and I was in the police department, and my at the time my boyfriend, who's my husband now, he was stationed here in Charleston, and so we used to like drive every weekend four Mm -hmm. hours back and forth to see each other. Um, I was like, this guy is dedicated. <laughs> it's commitment. <laughs> right. I was like, I, I might need to keep him around a yeah. little bit. Um, so then uh, I remember the first time I came here to Charleston to visit him, I was like, oh, okay, this is different, but I would never live here. I would never raise children here. Like, right. there's just something about Charleston that's like, ugh, mm-hmm. I, don't, I just don't want it. Mm-hmm. Um, yet here I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. when I, um, I actually left the department I was on because I felt like there was, um, there was just a level of corruption for me. This that, is being a police officer. Yes. Okay. Um, there was a level of corruption that I felt, um, couldn't be fixed from the inside out. Mm-hmm. Um, even when it like went all the way up to like internal affairs and I witnessed people on the department that had, were on the hiring board um, being arrested for things mm. that you would have been like, police officers don't do that. Right. Um, but they were. Yeah. Um, and I, again, was 20. So I kept thinking, like, I have my whole life ahead of me. I haven't had children. I haven't gotten married. Like, I haven't explored in the way that I want to. And I'm afraid that if I stay on this department, something could, like, seriously happen to me or I could, you mm-hmm. know, go away and they would make up any story. So were you, like, the police officer that drives around in the car? And, like, so you were doing mm-hmm. traffic arrests Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I mean, to some degree, I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. But then also, like, for me, it was like, again, getting your foot in the criminal justice door because I knew I wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to do more fighting for what was right. But when I started to see that, you know, somebody gets a traffic ticket, they're arrested for drugs, but if they're willing to negotiate certain terms and they could be out free, mm-hmm. um, and I'm like, you just killed somebody in a car accident, but we're going to let you go because you gave information. Like, my logic could not peace and make sense out of that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have peace about that. Um, also, <laughs> the person I am, I'm like, 
no justice is justice so yeah like eventually i felt like it would turn into like this situation where i'd be a vigilante and they'd be like ma'am how come every case <laughs> you've been on like we keep having all these victims just yeah. turn up and i'd be like mm, i don't know what's happening like, yeah so i knew for me like i it was something i needed to step away from yep. and get away from um and so I left the department. I, I moved here to Charleston and was like, well, this is a whole nother world that I did not plan to be in. So Right. Yeah. So I can like relate on a much smaller scale. I went to school originally to be a social worker. That's like what I've always wanted to do. Just be with people and work with people. My mom was in many, many, my mom was married four times and had some really shitty men in her life. And so I saw a lot of things that I just didn't want other people to experience. But I, the... My second year in that course, I was in a class and it was, we, the class was actually at the hospital. So we were starting to like work like some case, like with people that were coming in and telling their stories. And after this woman left, the, our professor, he was like, so, you know, the number one thing about being in social work is you have to treat the, the person that's the victim mm-hmm. with the, or the exact same as you treat the person that's doing it to them. And I was like, I'm out. Wow. Like, I just couldn't separate that. You know, mm-hmm. like, there was, like, this level of, like, professionalism, I guess, is what he was kind of referring to. And it just, to me, I was, like, I, it felt so emotional, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, was, I, I know there's people out there that do it and do a beautiful job of it. And I just was, like, this is not for me because I don't want to have to kill somebody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I can, I can relate to that. So you, okay, so you left the police force. Mm-hmm. You come to Charleston. Mm-hmm. Are you, are you still in the Air Force? Yes, I'm still in the Air Force at this time. So reservist, you, um, you're, air, you're in the military, but you serve one week in a month. And okay. then you do two weeks a year unless you like, get put on orders. And then you act as if you're active duty. Um, so I moved here. And the worker being me would not let me not work. Mm-hmm. Um, but also being in the South, they wouldn't take my same certifications as far as being a medical assistant. So I couldn't go back into the medical field. I had to, um, I actually started working at the mall. I will never work retail ever again <laughs> due to that I've, experience. I've, I've done retail myself. It is not for me either. It is not. Another place where you may kill somebody. <laughs> yes. <laughs> for other reasons, but right. yes, yes, absolutely. Um, but throughout like, so I was stationed um, first in Colorado, then I was stationed in two, di- uh, two different bases in Texas. Then I was stationed in um, California and then back to Colorado. Um, and all of those different experiences, I had always practiced yoga since mm-hmm. I first began. And so I had a variety of different teachers, different styles, and even like move, like I would, when I would come visit here and he would go to the gym, I would try out a yoga class because mm-hmm. um, they're free on most bases. Right. Um, so I just had this different experience of yoga that like I couldn't tell you a specific teacher or a specific style because I just experienced so much different mm-hmm. and I knew I needed to show up for what felt right for me. So um, I experimented with some of the studios that were around here at that point. I think there were two. When um, was this? This was, I got here in 2008. Okay. So there was, I think, Blue Turtle and mm-hmm. Holy Cow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I attended classes in those places, attended classes on the base. Um, I was like, yeah, some of these just, mm-mm, they're not for me. Um, and at this point... Oh, at that point, I, I guess I had been practicing yoga maybe for three or four years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mostly went with what felt right for me as far as yoga spaces and teachers, and that's where I would show up. So it ended up not being in any studio spaces, which I know a lot of folks are like, 
oh, it's not, it's not real yoga if you're doing it at a gym or whatever. Um, but that's what resonated with me. And then when I was ready to become a teacher at that point, I was already... I don't already... believe that, just so you know. <laughs> Keep going. I was married <laughs> and um, pregnant and I missed my practice. And so I was pregnant in 2012. And this is when... Um, Folks were still saying, like, if you're pregnant, you're fragile. Basically, Mm -hmm. don't do anything except breathe and eat. Um, (laughs) And then, like, layer on all the Southern rules. Like, don't cross your legs. Don't reach up over your head. Don't cough. Don't sneeze. The baby's going to, like... So stressful. Right. And then you're like, my baby's going to come out of alien because of all these rules. Right. (laughs) It doesn't happen. Right. I mean, mean, it might happen. Never mind. (laughs) But, yeah, all of these rules. And so I really miss the practice because now I'm like okay, I'm, pre- I'm pregnant and I can't do this thing. And I was ready to, um, I just, I felt like I was ready at that point to become a teacher mm-hmm. and share the gift of yoga with other people. Um, but so many other things happened. So I found out I was pregnant in um, April, 2012. And August, 2011, my mother, the week before her birthday, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. Um and so she was battling all this time, and my husband and I had bought our first house here, and I remember being like, hmm, we have this huge five-bedroom house, and it's the two of us, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. Um, which was strategic to me, but whatever. Um, so we bought this house, and I was like, well, babe, what do you think about, you know, my mom and my little sister moving in so that, you know, she doesn't have to worry about caring for herself. She was living in Kansas at that point, and one of her biggest fears was um, something happening to her, my little sister finding her and right. being alone. Mm. Um, so we moved them into our house here. And at this point, I'm pregnant. And um, so my mom ends up getting put in the hospital. I get put on bed rest. Oh my, my husband had an ankle surgery because um, he messed up his ankle. And then he also gets orders for us to be stationed somewhere else. So oh let me tell you how he told me. I've like chilled over my whole body right now. Oh my, God. <laughs> my husband is, he's very extroverted. So, and we had been waiting for like, at this point, almost eight years to try to get orders and leave Charleston. And he kept getting denied. So I'm like, okay, buy a house. We're fine. We'll just settle here. Mm-hmm. That's when they give you orders. Mm-hmm. So he, he like comes home and he's like, um, you know, think of somewhere tropical. So I'm like, ooh, I had a dream about Japan. I mean, Puerto Rico. Like, I'm naming all of these places. And he's like, think tsunami. And I'm like, definitely Japan, like <laughs> the Philippines, China. I mean, I don't know. And he's like, yeah, we got orders to Hawaii. I'm like, somebody could have said aloha, right, pineapple, right, trees, like right. beach. You say tsunami. But right, okay, right, right, right. <laughs> so we got orders to um, Hawaii. He had this ankle surgery. My mom's in the hospital. I'm on bed rest. Um, I remember still like going back and visiting my mom, technically on bed rest. Um, And at this point, I was basically active duty in the Air Force. And my job at this point is logistics plan. So I had to deploy 215 people and any equipment and anything that they needed to get over to the deploy location, I had to make sure they had it. So I would have to worry about like the person, Sarah, make sure there's paperwork in place. If something happened to you that your family could survive, you've had all your medical stuff, your shots. You're doing this from your bed? No, I was doing this at full time, 12 hours a day for the Air Force. Um, And so 215 people I have to do this for. And I remember my mom was sick and I kept saying, um, you know, soon as I get these people deployed and they're like off out the way, then like I can cut back on some hours. I can prepare for like the baby to come, mm-hmm. all the things. And literally the week after I had everyone deployed um, was the week of Thanksgiving. 
and my mom was sick, so I remember her um, boss sending her home, and they actually like had Thanksgiving dinner taken care of for us and mm. sent to our house. And I spent Thanksgiving Day with her. I remember all of my siblings talked to my mom except one. Um, and I've always been... <laughs> I don't really like people to touch me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm working on it because, you know, Southerners are like, I'm a hugger. And I'm like, oh. So I'm like, oh. COVID must be amazing for you. Okay. I You're like, I can't it. leave my house and nobody can touch me. Yes. I'm like, Ooh. So people are like, how are you making? I'm like, I mean, I, I, I I'm having a, for this. a heart. Yeah. <laughs> so um, my mom, um, she was like talking to me and telling me these things. She was the only person that ever got to touch my belly besides a doctor that mm-hmm. while I was pregnant. And I was pregnant with my daughter. And um, so she starts telling me all these things about like, oh, you know, when you have a baby, blah, 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 like they're going to do this. And if you have to have a C-section and I'm like, I don't know why she's telling me this because I already told them not to let me get cut. Like, mm-hmm. that's my birth plan. Don't cut me. Right. <laughs> like, whatever. Unless like one of our lives are in danger. Right. Um, so she starts telling me, she's like, you think you're going to have another baby? I was like, huh, this pregnancy was enough. Like, so I'm thinking all of these things. And the next day I went back to work. Um, my husband stayed home. My little sister was home. And my husband texted me and was like, um, you know, I had to help your mom to the bathroom today. So I texted her and was like, hey, like, are you taking your vitamins? I'm not going to stay at work long, but, um, you know, I'll come home and help you. And she's like, no, don't come home. Your little sister's fine. She's got me. So I was like, okay. Um, but then, like, you know, when you start working and, like, you really get in, like, this, like, swing of yeah. things happening. So I look up two hours later and I'm like, oh, but, like, I'm, like, really cranking out this work. Um, and then my office phone rings. I couldn't have my cell phone because I worked with some secret information. So my office phone rings and it's my little sister crying. I'm like, hello. And she's like, mom, stop breathing. And I'm like, oh my God. Okay, so I didn't ask for permission, but I was like, why the fuck are you on the phone with me? Like, yeah. call 911. Where, where is Ralph, my husband? And she's like, he's giving her CPR right now. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to be there. I hang up the phone. I um, basically grabbed my phone and my wallet and my keys and I left and I called my supervisor on the way, the commander, and was like, listen, y'all got to lock up, do whatever the fuck you got to do because Mm -hmm. my mom's not breathing and I need to go. Um, And so I left the base, drove home um, in Somerville. By the time I got there, they were all gone. So then I went to the closest hospital, which was Trident. And when I got there, um, they put us in like this little room in the waiting room. So you know it's like serious. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember, um, them coming in and telling me like, we did everything that we could and your mom didn't make it. Um, and I remember in that moment, like not being able to say or do much because now my husband was literally doing CPR on my mom. Mm -hmm. My little sister is here. And if I fall apart, either of those things could fall apart. And my mom lives with me. So I need to call her mom, her six siblings, uh, my father, mm. all of my siblings. Um, and so I have to hold these things together. Right. Um, and I honestly believe like my yoga practice is one of the things that helps me ground. It's always been one of those things where it's like, if nothing else happens um, that I get to me, mm-hmm. like this is for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, if you got to wait for an hour, you got to wait for an hour. But this practice is mine. Right. Um, and so that helped me to be able to remain grounded and care for the rest of my family mm-hmm. in the way that they needed me to show up. Um, so then that was two weeks before my daughter was born. So we get to 40 weeks. 
and the little girl doesn't want to come out. <laughs> she does not want to be evicted. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I'm like, babe, help me get her out. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, no. Um, and with my daughter, she sat really high, so you couldn't tell I was pregnant unless I turned around and looked at you, uh-huh. um, which I was kind of grateful for. Right. Um, <laughs> but then, so now we're we're at the due date. Also, we need to have a cell, like a ceremony for my mom mm-hmm. and. You know, you have to be so far postpartum. So um, we get, to, I get induced at the hospital. My doctor was like, you know, you you have to be two weeks postpartum before you can fly. And we were gonna have my mom's service back in Kansas, where all her friends were, and mm-hmm. it was just closer to Colorado, where her her family is. Um, and so I'm like, okay, so I guess we're having this baby. Baby never comes. Baby doesn't want to come. I mean, I don't know if she was like forewarning me, like the world's a horrible place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so she just wanted to stay in there and I ended up, um, ended up having a C-section. So I had to, uh, get her out and then we went to Kansas and celebrated for my mom. Mm-hmm. And then I came back and, um, we still had to move to Hawaii. Right. So um, I remember, you know, after you have that baby, then they're like, oh, let's have a, a we'll do a checkup and do a no, another conversation about like birth control or blah, blah, blah. I got there four months and they were like, um, so you're pregnant. <gasps> oh my God. I was pissed. Two weeks. I did not talk to my husband. I was like, this is you're your like, fault. You wouldn't have sex with me the whole time I was pregnant and now? <laughs> right. I'm like, I was sleeping. You bothered me. <laughs> he, and he always is like, don't tell people that. Then people like get this wrong perception. And I'm like, <laughs> um, so we were pregnant again. But now because. So how does, how I, you know, my, I, my, I, that would never happen to me. But like, are you like, oh my gosh. Uh, and you're a new mom. So, I mean, like your first kid, I, like I felt it was so much harder than. It's just, for me, it's all brand new. It felt mm-hmm. like so out of body. The, well, I'll put it like this. It was like, my mom is always very intuitive, and she's the one that definitely like taught me to lean into my intuition mm-hmm. because um, even as a teenager, I have very vivid dreams, and I could like sit up and tell her what happened, and she would like rearrange everything our family was mm-hmm. doing based off of the dream that I had. Wow. Um, so I've always like super leaned into my intuition and into you know what my mom would say. So after I... After I had my daughter, which again was a C-section, after I said like that was my plan, don't cut me. Right. Um, then all of the things that my mom said that last day started clicking, and mm-hmm. I was like, wow. Okay, so I'm ha- I like I had a, sec- a C-section. She told me to do this, so now I'm doing that. Um, she uh, one of the last things she told me about my mother-in-law was like she's gonna be here to help you, mm-hmm. and I was like, okay. She's like, your husband's a really great man. Mm-hmm. So like even through hard Sweet. times, I'm like, but my mom said. Yeah. She's like, <laughs> She said, "Be he's a great good guy." <laughs> <laughs> so, like all of those things, kind of just kicked in naturally for me. And and even when um, I was mad um, when I got pregnant the second time, but then I like during that two weeks when I wasn't speaking, <laughs> I remembered my mom saying, "You're gonna have another one," and I was just like, "Okay, yeah. she did this. Yeah, all right, fine." <laughs> but oh then, gosh. like, okay, so. Now we're raising my younger sister. My mom used to always tell me, because my little sister almost looks like my twin, and she would follow me around everywhere. If I had a boyfriend, that was her boyfriend, uh-huh. apparently. How, so old, my, how old is she? What's the age We're difference? nine years apart. Okay. So my mom would always say, when you get married, you're going to have to marry a guy that doesn't mind your little sister living with you. And I'm like, who says that? Right. Okay. Don't put that on me. Um, but sure enough, when my mom passed, my, my younger sister lived with us. So now I'm like, okay, I'm going to stay here another year. 
um, for her to finish up high school, and then she'll go off to college. Then I'll go over to Hawaii, um, where my husband was already stationed. Okay. He so he was there. Us. Yeah, he was there. Um, and then things didn't work out that way, where I was like, mm, teenagers, and I'm pregnant, and I have a four-month-old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got to... So I um, arranged for my sister to go stay with my dad. Um, and then I had to move all of our things, like pack up an entire house as a pregnant lady and move to Hawaii. So... That was a feat in itself. <laughs> and then you can definitely tell when you weren't in the South anymore. So, like, I remember flying from here to Atlanta, and people were like, oh, she's pregnant. Ma'am, let me get that suitcase. Oh, I'll hold the baby. Like, yeah. you know, people just wanted to help oh, you. Yeah. By the time I got from, I think it went from Atlanta to L.A., and I get on the plane in L.A., people are just looking at me like, well, you hurry up. Like, <laughs> You're like, no. your stuff. And yeah. I'm like, belly, like, baby, like, yeah. all these things. I was like, so we're not in the South anymore. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. I got it. <laughs> so I got over there and, um, again, still pregnant. I was ready. I was just ready to become a yoga teacher. And so I had did some research on, like, what schools I wanted to go to, what was um, available there. And the school that I really wanted, um, I chose it because they just had even broad representation in their teachers. Mm-hmm. They had black male teachers. They had acro, sup, yoga, like prenatal children's, bigger body. Te- like I wanted a, a teaching experience that reflected like my experiences mm-hmm. of going to all these different classes. And so that's where I um, decided to go ahead and train. And So you're pregnant mm-hmm. during your training? Uh, no, I wasn't pregnant during my training. I was pregnant when I decided. I talked to the school. And I was like, as soon as this baby's out, like, I'm going to get my life back. Um, because I never, re- like, I always knew I would be a good mom, but I didn't plan for being pregnant. Part. Right. Oh, yeah. And when you're, like, a, a very structured, like, yeah. on top of it kind of person, children is kind of like, you mean I'm not running anything anymore? Oh, right. Like, oh, you're in charge. Right. And then, like, even being pregnant, you're like, you're the size of, what do they say? Like, the baby's the size of a pea. Then why are you running everything? Right, like, right. <laughs> but it's like you have no control over the, those things. So um, it was very interesting to now take on this new role. And I have I've always had, I've had a job since probably seventh grade. Mm-hmm. So not wow. working was not a thing for me. So now I have these two children and they poop and they don't lay down at the same time. And people are like, when the baby rests, you rest. You're like, right. How? Right. Where? Like, right. where does, and we were also in Hawaii. So there's no family. There's no like support system. The military does a great job of putting off this we're family. If you need anything, let us know. Uh-huh. You're like, I need something. They're like, like we were kidding. We just, yeah. we were just saying that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was, it was um, a lot of growth for sure. And I was so glad because that was my first um, experience when I lived there ever experiencing wanderlust um, and witnessing yogis that had a commitment to the practice that was just very different. Like in Hawaii, you could wake up and their the first yoga class would be like 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. And you'd be like, people in the South are not waking up that mm-hmm. early. Like 8.30, you're pushing it. Right. But in Hawaii, 5 o'clock, like you're fighting to get like the last little corner space right. to like roll out your mat and do something. And um, so I just witnessed like so many different healing modalities and experiences. And I just, I wanted in on all of it. Mm-hmm. And then when I finally became a teacher, um, I had to move back to South Carolina. I was like, huh. So what happened there? Um, so the house we owned here, we ended up renting. Originally we were going to go to Hawaii and my mom and my sister were just going to stay in it. But things happened so rapidly. We started renting it out. 
Um, and then our property managers basically abandoned the house. Um, one of my neighbors ends up calling me while I was in Hawaii. I was like, yeah, someone broke into your house last night. Oh, my gosh. And, and my husband chased him away and held him to the cops got there. And now I'm like, oh, my God. Pregnant with two kids. And um, I was doing more stay-at-home mom work and nonprofit work. And so... I was like, I can't keep flying like back and forth to manage things. So it's just going to be easier for me to go back. So right. I came back um, technically a year early, but then my husband got extended like a year and a half in Hawaii. So we spent a good, let's see, I came back in 16. I don't think my husband came back until like the end of 17. And you're here like by yourself with two little kids. <laughs> Maybe. So <laughs> I was here with two kids, my two. They were um, two and three. And then my older sister from Colorado came to visit um, and decided, I'm just going to leave here. So um, she brought her five children. And I was like, yeah, I can't do five. So she took the youngest with her. And I had six children. So there were six children here with me by myself. My husband was in Hawaii. My My sister went back to Colorado. Um, And this is me starting my yoga career. Because now I'm like, yes, boots on the ground. I'm teaching everywhere I can. Wait, I also have six children. How does this work? Yeah. Um, And at this point, I was taking um, basically whatever classes I could get. Mm -hmm. I knew, actually, before I came back to start teaching, I had called um, yoga studios in Charleston. I had this long list in green. I'm like, this is just going to happen. And every single studio either wouldn't answer my calls or wouldn't return my calls, Um, except one. And she told me up front, like the owner was like, we do not have space for any yoga teachers, but I'm very interested in hearing. And then, you know, if something opens up, we'd love to have you. Mm -hmm. And so I will always like have a extra special warm place in my heart for them. Um, And so I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to make this work, then I'm going to have to come back and just do it in my own way. So when when I had my sister's kids and my kids, six children, um, I started teaching, and it was 17 classes a week. Oh, my gosh. And I got paid for not a single one of them. Oh, my gosh. Where were you teaching? (sighs) Where wasn't I teaching? (laughs) I was teaching on both bases. I was teaching um, at a couple of churches as well. some summer camps with children. That's how I learned that children's yoga is not... Same. Same. Mm-mm. Same. I was I having this conversation <laughs> yesterday. I was like, it, I know people can do it and do it really good. I was mm-hmm. like, it is not my jam. No, not at all. Mm-mm. Yeah. By the end of classes, you just want to be like, your kid's hanging by his toe. Yeah. Get that one yeah. like, on your yeah. way out. <laughs> yeah. I'm done. Yeah. Um, but what I'm incredibly grateful for, and so I will never... like, I, I just don't despise small beginnings... Every one of those 17 classes ended up turning out something that I have or get to do today or a mm-hmm. relationship today because I said yes and mm-hmm. did those free classes. Um, so when like I meet new teachers and they're like, well, I don't have to do things for free. I'm like, you don't. But also think of don't think of everything as a monetary exchange because some exchanges are greater than absolutely like even what money can give you. So I totally I was just in another conversation I was just having. I was like, you know. There's definitely, like, there's so many different types of energy and, like, you know, relationships and and kindness and eye contact. Like, those are all forms of energy, you mm-hmm. know, um, especially now that all you can see is people's <laughs> eyes, basically. Mm-hmm. Yes, should you be paid for your work? I do believe that. But I also, you know, when I started teaching, like, I studied under someone. And so I did anything she needed 
any classes, you know, anything, any way I could learn and mm-hmm. absorb. And it wasn't like a paid internship. Um, and I don't see that like self-study as much in up and coming teachers. So that's something that's, um, I think is really interesting. I, I have to agree with you. And I think it's in part, I'm not going to blame, but in part, I think it's because of social media mm-hmm. has convinced people that, um, this practice is just physical and what it looks like. Um, not really being aware that when someone tells you to do a headstand for a picture, right. <laughs> a really good picture, like you're holding it for a minute. So what muscles are engaged? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have all of these younger people that are like, oh, there's this thing and it looks like acrobats or mm-hmm. gymnastics and they want to do it. And that self-study piece is not there. It's mm-hmm. just this, I want to be this yoga celebrity that pops up on all of these things. And um, it's it's also kind of heartbreaking because when you know like, you've invested this many years mm-hmm. and experiences into building yourself as a teacher or a student of yoga itself, um, like you're kind of taking it away. You're like fucking it up for the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I, I even think back, um, when, when, I, when some people reach out to me and they're like, I want you to teach me and I want to be a yoga teacher and do what you do. And I'm like, why? Mm-hmm. That is always one of the first questions I ask because mm-hmm. Before I became a teacher, I had been practicing for 11 years. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just that I woke up and was like, okay, I'm going to do this thing and we're just right. going to make it happen. Or I'm going to quit all my jobs and suddenly um, you know, become a yoga teacher. I think of Ashley Bell shared in um, the Finding Yoga in the Holy City documentary that um, she's like, you know, people go to a really great doctor. It doesn't make them go become a doctor. Right. So why do, <laughs> so why do people be like, oh my God, that yoga class was amazing. I'm going to be a yoga teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I always try to not not tell people not to do it. Of course, you have to follow your heart, but mm-hmm. why are you doing it? And mm-hmm. what is the outcome of that? Um, and I also knew being, at this point, a black woman in a bigger body, for me, my yoga experience oftentimes in studios that I experienced, they couldn't honor... Um, they couldn't hold two truths. They couldn't hold that, yes, things in a yoga space... Or in yoga philosophy, feel this certain way. Like you have this bliss body, you have the energetic body, and also you have a reality body, which means when you leave, there literally are homeless people. Mm-hmm. They, they You can't just elevate above something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, I was like, you know, when I do start teaching, I'm going to have to teach in a different way that really relates to me because a lot of this doesn't feel relatable. Mm-hmm. And it excludes people because they can't relate to it. Um So like even I go back to the joking about levitating, you know, thinking about levitating, people think that yoga is this woo-woo thing and you can just levitate, right? It'll be easy Mm -hmm. or you can just hit this posture like that and and there's no work behind it. And it's also like people don't see that how many years you've been trying to get into that posture. Mm -hmm. People don't see that when you fell out of that posture, you criticized yourself and are like, every time you try something, you fail. And now you have that inner work of like, where did that come from? Why do I always think I fail? Um, and how do you culminate that in a way that makes everyone feel like they can experience this for themselves? Mm-hmm. And not in a way where it's like, no, this is what yoga is and this is how you have to feel it. But more of a, this is an offering um, and an invitation to think about something different. Mm-hmm. And even how you see yourself and respond to the world moving differently. So I don't even know what your last question was. No, that's, <laughs> it's, I'm just like listening because it's something I, I think about and I've been doing this work for a long time as well. And my, my practice has shifted and changed, but the thing that, sorry, keeps me, um, 
you know, I think I told you this too, when, when I left my last studio and I opened this space, I purposely didn't call it a yoga studio. Not mm-hmm. yoga is amazing. It's beautiful. But because I felt that I didn't want to be put in a place for someone to say what you're doing, you're doing it the wrong way. Because for me, it's like, I always say in classes, like when say we're teaching handstands mm-hmm. anatomically, let's talk about bodies, right? So this is what's important. Like if you know that like this is pushed back or your shoulders pushed back and you can't do that. So it's not like, like every posture isn't for everybody. A, mm-hmm. and then B it's so, it's like you fall down in there and how we get up in there is how we get up in the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, you look at, I look around the room and I was telling, I teach tonight, um, at five thirty, it's the one evening class I teach because usually I'm with my kids and it's for some reason, my Tuesday evening classes, it's a lot, um, mainly women. I think a lot of women that are like, maybe like not all single. I know there's a lot of some mothers in there, but people that don't have the like luxury to come at 8am because they work. Right. Mm-hmm. So they come in the evening. And so these people are here and they, they want more than fitness. Like they need the heart work. And I look around the room and it's all different bodies on all different mats and all different clothes. And I'm like, you know, I think as women and maybe as speak, or I know as a woman myself out of the three bodies, one of the hardest body I've ever given a hard time to is my physical body, mm-hmm. which started you know, with eating and then moving on to fertility. And then when we lost grace, it was because of something I carried. So it's like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And I mm-hmm. said, you know, this practice has really taught me that there is, it really is so beautiful in all the bodies to not hit every posture, to not, to take breaks. Mm-hmm. Like that was for me, one of the hardest things. Cause I had this mentality that like I had to be really good and do really good. And taking a break meant equaled failure. Mm-hmm. Right. So like one of the hardest postures for me to learn was child's pose and to stay for Shavasana. Mm. And when I learned to do that, there was a lot of freaking, this is kind of cliche, but like beauty in the breakdown because like I can go and that's the extrovert in me, right? Like I can go, I can go, I can create, I can do, but when I stop, I have to process. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people that is, from my experience, that's hard. Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of um, truths, I think especially in the world that we're living in today, that it's easy to not pay attention to or to create your own whole story around it, you know? Um, So that, like, leads me into my next question for you. So as a black woman, Mm -hmm. and you and I have talked before, and I used to say to Kenei, what if I say it wrong? I'm going to do it wrong. She's like, it's okay. You're going (laughs) to do it wrong. (laughs) Let's talk. So you were a police officer, and you grew up with a father who was a police officer. Mm -hmm. What is your experience with police officers? Um, my experience, um, is definitely different than other folks because, um, it's loaded. Um, so let me give you some more backstory. One of my aunts, um, was a police officer. She became a police officer when I was two. Um, and she served on the same department my father did, but in 1995, um, December 12th, 1995, my oldest cousin was killed by a police officer. Mm. Um, during this time, my dad was in police training to become a police officer. And I'll never forget, my family had, um, it wasn't a fight, but it was like, there was a lot of anger and tension because um, 
my aunt that was a police officer was allowed to stay, but the expectation was that my father would not join the police department kind of as a, like a result of, well, they killed your nephew um, type thing. So I remembered that um, my dad did decide to become a police officer. My father's from New Jersey. So his experience with police is entirely different as well. Um, and that's where my mother ended up not liking police. They went to New Jersey to visit my dad's side of the family, and my father got pulled over in the Jersey Turnpike, and he was thrown up against a car. Um, and my mom just didn't like how they handled the situation um, because of my father being a black male and what, what police thought of him. Um, and New Jersey, has, especially the Turnpike, they have a lot of history as far as like police brutality and, and um, the Black Panthers and all of these things. So my father does become a police officer, and... I think I was in fourth grade around this time because he used to practice on me a lot. Um, so I remember like all of these things um, on like defending myself on all of these things. So when I joined the police department, the department I was on, they drilled, we had to go through two different types of training. Well, one training before state training and then um, you become a police officer. And one of the things I remember always is the department I was on was very strict. If you drew your weapon out of your holster, um, is automatic suspension. It doesn't matter if you shot it or didn't shot it, mm -hmm. shoot it. Um, and then there were three elements that you had to have in order to be able to draw that weapon and justify it. And the person had to basically have motive, basically be close enough to you where they could cause harm and um, the intention to do so. So a lot of times when I see um, and witness videos of unarmed people, black people being killed, um, part of me does re re like go back to that police training. And then the other part of me also is like, well, even when I go back to the police training, I know you can read comment sessions, you can listen to people talk and they're like, well, why didn't the officer do this? Or why didn't the officer do that? And the truth is police officers are not trained to shoot an arm. Mm. Um, when we, when you go through police training, they teach you to fire a firearm and you aren't, you shoot at whatever the biggest part is, which means somebody's head or center mass, which is their body. Um, your chances of shooting a weapon 25 feet from you and hitting someone's arm is very slim to none. And if a person is pumped with adrenaline, they might not feel anything and they're still a threat. Mm -hmm. So when officers are taught to shoot guns, and this is the same reason I teach my children this, when you shoot a weapon, you're eliminating the threat, period. Mm -hmm. um, and so... I also see when people are like, well, they could have de-escalated. There is no de-escalation training. It's eliminate the threat. That's it, period. Right. The stories um, on a police department you're told is, well, you want to make it home. Mm. Um, and then the acronym POP for police. So it always means um, don't piss off police or piss off the people, um, which means you'll make it home at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, sometimes I see situations where it could have been de-escalated, but it doesn't happen. I also am very much aware of uh, folks say, okay, demilitarize the police, right? Like they shouldn't have the same weapons that the military has. And not saying this is, this is the right answer, but a lot of, we have to acknowledge why that happens in the first place. When you are a military veteran, your career field that you had in the military does not convert to shit as a civilian. So now how do you provide for your family? 
the first job you are always offered, it doesn't matter if you <laughs> were a chef in the military or if you flew the plane or if you were the person that had to stir in the piss pot over in the desert. Mm -hmm. The first job you will always be offered as a civilian is a police officer. And the reason for that is they know you will shut up in color. You're used to following orders and you're used to telling people it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel about it you have to listen to authority. And so they know that. So they specifically recruit people from the military. So being a military person that's used to following orders, used to not ra you know, raising their hand and being like, hey, something's wrong here, right. something's off. That's who they're going to hire. Not only do they hire them, but guess what the military is like? Oh, well, I don't see why you guys have a problem with people doing X, Y, and Z. Why don't you just order X, Y, and Z? Because that's what they're used to from military training. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about, like, people talk about, oh, just, you know, defund the police or demilitarize the police. If you gave veterans jobs when they got out or you made sure that their training from the military actually converted to a civilian job, do you think they would be joining police departments? Mm, right. Um, so they're, like... It's not, you know, it's not a single answer on how to fix this because it's systematic. There's so many things that are tied into each other. So a lot of times I feel both sides. I'm like, I've been there as a military member. I've also been there as a police officer. And honestly, a lot of people go into the, both the military and the police department because they've never had a sense of authority They've never recognized or had their own sense of power. And so they join either of those feeling like they're finally going to be somebody. Yep. So when they do that and then they pull someone over and you ask, you know, it's like a child. But why? Mm -hmm. It's like a challenge to that authority. Mm -hmm. I've never been questioned before. Right. Like I, I've made this happen before. And so it's not really a moment doesn't happen for them to de-escalate because in that moment they actually took it personal. Mm -hmm. um, they don't want to have to explain themselves because in the military, you don't. I tell you to do this, you're going to go do it, period. Mm -hmm. There's no explanation, no questions, any of those things. And so it's really hard to say. Um, I personally, and, and having studied a lot of trauma, when I see like the recent one in Atlanta um, with the Lyft driver, I notice that when I'm watching a video, if I do, I hold my breath every time because I'm holding it almost like, please, in some way, let this one be different. Let somebody say, hey, get off of him. Let even the officer snap back in that moment and be like, oh, my God, like, what am I doing? Um, and so I, I find myself holding my breath, but I find myself holding my breath every single time. And then even when you hold your breath, like what else in your body constricts that you can't breathe? Mm -hmm. And then I think collectively, I'm not, I'm not separate from my community. So me having had those training experiences, me understanding how trauma is working in our bodies, um, I can make logic and sense of what's happening, but what about people in my community that can't? Mm -hmm. um, and I've been on the other end of it where folks are like, fuck the police, mm -hmm. fuck the military. And I get that as well. Um, and it's just, it's, it's, it's a place where there, it's so nuanced. People have to be willing to hear both sides of it because it's not easy. Mm -hmm. Police officers do want to go home at the end of the day. Are they handling it in the best way to make that happen? Not all the time. Um, and it's, it's the same that can be with military. Yeah, no, that's a beautiful answer right there. Cause it's, uh, you know, I, I don't, I know nothing. So nothing, I don't, can't give any sort of an opinion, I feel like, I mean, just what you said, I, 
Like, I, I don't know what it's like to be in the military. I don't know what it's like to be a police officer. I don't know what it's like to be a black woman or man. And I can only imagine that, like what you're saying, it's like you can see both sides. And mm -hmm. a lot of your training in, like, acknowledging and breath work and, like, putting your feet in the ground has given you, like, the wherewithal to be able to see that. Um, mm -hmm. So how do you explain that to people? Because you just did a really good job explaining it to me. Um. Like, if you... Okay, so, I don't know. I'm like... Do I have like a scenario to give you? So if you're like the whole, the def defund the police. Mm -hmm. So if someone comes to you and they're like, yeah, what do you, you agree? Right. Da, da, da. So do you kind of give that the answer that you just shared with us? Um, I don't because I believe one of my biggest thing is I believe in people power. And I think part of people power and I, I believe this needs to show up in yoga spaces as well. People have to realize that we have the power. Mm -hmm. Just like, um, okay, so this happens to me at least as a yoga teacher. I'll teach a class and then someone comes up and they're like, I have this situation. And they just, blah, 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 and they're like, what do I do? I'm like, I remind them the first thing is like, I'm not your guru. Mm -hmm. I don't have the answers for you, but I know you do. So help, let me help you get to them. So tell me it again. Okay, well, what do you think about this? okay, so what would you do if this? And then they kind of like walk themselves through it. And then they're like, oh, thanks for the answer. I'm like, no, that was like, that's your power. Mm -hmm. um, and so I try to tell people the same thing. I believe in people power where what happened to us looking out for each other? What happened to um, us policing ourselves? Mm -hmm. we, we know nobody should be touching a child, right? Mm -hmm. So what happened to people in the community being like, hey, is that little boy okay? He's not my son, but why can't I check on that person? Or why can't I tell that person, hey, leave that child alone? Like, mm -hmm. what happened that we don't care anymore, that we've separated ourselves? Like, it's not my situation. Mm -hmm. And if we take it back there, you know, I hear a lot folks saying, ah, society has gotten so bad. We're society. Right. <laughs> like, that's all of us. Right. When we start to separate ourselves from it, there's no way for us to see it reflected in us and think it's all of our problem. Right. Um, so that's what I would say to, like, defunding the police. But I also think, like, one of the reasons we hold um, separate space, like space for Black and Indigenous people of color, is because there's a lot of hurt and issues um, and traumas that need to be healed and it needs to be done in a way that is very safe and um, where we have this understand and shared experience where we can say, listen, we're all hurting. Mm -hmm. We are hurting right now and we're all feeling it. And it has to be done away from sometimes white folks that are just curious. And sometimes there's white folks that are very, um, <laughs> they just want to like probe. Yeah, but what about black on black crime? Listen, we got it. Like right, we, right. Tr we talk about it all of the time. Right. There are marches, there are um, organizations that are against the violence in our own communities. And also, do white people not kill white people? Do right. Asian people not kill Asian people? We don't have that conversation, but it's always used in the conversation when it's violence against black folks. And so sometimes that healing has to happen away. And sometimes part of that healing is also acknowledging with black folks, like, listen, I get it. You grew up here in Charleston, your experience with white people is that... <laughs> Having a fun time. Her bad. adorable children are here and they're really enjoying the studio. <laughs> uh, but your experience is that all white people are bad and that's not the experience that I've had, but I can also recognize that that's your experience. Mm -hmm. um, so then how do you 
encourage folks to try again? How do you encourage folks to trust again? And I think it takes a lot of building relationships. Um, so someone told me this yesterday and I'm not shocked, honestly. They were like, you're very intimidating. You know how many people in the city in the yoga, in the, in like the yoga community are intimidated by you? And I'm like, no, like I don't like, I'm not really aware, not because I'm looking for it, but also because, um, I know I'm here for a purpose. Mm -hmm. And I also know that for me, it just feels like, um, people are intimidated by what they don't know and understand. Mm -hmm. I had a conversation with another studio owner that said, well, you said, (laughs) she said, you said you would never teach in somebody's studio. You had to create your own. Um, Well, you didn't even try, but she never even asked me. So then, you know, then I can't tell her about that long list that I called where people didn't answer my phone call, where they didn't speak to me. Um, But it's just this assumption. And a lot of times we see that play in our reality. Like people are assuming that black people make these things up, that they're not believed or to be believed Mm -hmm. um, without actually pausing and saying, well, gee, why do I, like, why do I think that? And even black folks have to um, unpack our own internalized oppression. I lived and grew up in Colorado. So (laughs) my husband laughs at me because he's like, yeah, your hood. I'm like, "Mm, (laughs) not really, but okay. Right. So then I come, like I moved to Charleston. I'll never forget the, uh, the first time he took me down to see like, um, market street Mm -hmm. where the slave market is. Um, I was just like shocked, like, why is this still here? And he's like, yeah. And so he's explaining all of the things. Is he and, from Charleston? Um, no, he's, but his parents are from South Carolina. Okay, so he so grew up around. like, yeah. yeah. Um, so then he, um, where were we? Oh no, we stayed downtown for a while. We ate and we were, I think coming up the backside of East Bay going, you know, back towards North Charleston. And he turned down this street and I was like, lock the doors. Where's my purse? Like, and I had like, in that moment I had to pause and be like, oh shit, like mm-hmm. I just literally did the same thing to other black people that white people do to black people. Mm-hmm. And I think right now we're, we're in this place in this world where um, some folks are waking up and they're ready to talk and have those conversations and ask questions and be like, okay, I know this might sound racist, but I have to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but also there, there has to be a, a, another learning and understanding of you can be a black person and you can internalize racism as well. Candace Owens, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Ben Carson, um, <laughs> like all of these people. And a lot of times we also have to pay attention to when white folks make friends with a black person, um, how do they ask that black person to show up? Because you can go look in anybody's like comment section, especially on a Candace Owens, and there's white women, I just love Candace, but why? Mm-hmm. And then are you weaponizing Candace's opinion and voice against other black folks? Mm-hmm. Because at the end of that, you're, you like Candace because she supports your same opinions. Not because she's such a diverse person, but it's like, I found this black person that agrees with everything that I believe. And so I'm going to use this one to say this one's right. And the rest of you guys are wrong. Um, which means again, the white person wins. She, like, and I, I, th- I think I know exactly what you're talking about. She used to be like a correspondent on Fox news, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, um, so we hold space for both because we have to be able to heal. I have to be able to, um, like healing is for everybody. Racism affects everybody and people, unfortunately don't we see the effects of racism on black and brown bodies we see it we see it from um, expendable income we see it from education and classism we see it like openly happening to black folks 
But what I've learned through my training and from my teachers is racism affects white folks as well because um, white folks end up saying, well, like, well, damn, who am I? So I teach a workshop in agreement and we go through you know, how we got here as a country, how this shows up in yoga and wellness spaces, what we can change. And one of the questions most of the white folks say after, like towards the end there was like, so we talk about cultural appropriation and, and I'm like, you know, you don't burn with this or you don't do that and this means this. And, and they're like, ah. I was like, so what are your cultural practices? And they're like, I'm white, I don't have any culture. And it's like, you do, yeah. but what people fail to realize is when they when they came to America or their families and, and you know ancestors migrated to or immigrated to America, they had to give up that culture to be considered an American. So what did Italian people do? What did English people do? Mm-hmm. Um, what did folks from Scotland do? Those are your cultural practices. Mm-hmm. And a lot of white folks are like, oh shit, well, I've been burning, I've been smudging with sage. Right. And I didn't even think that I had any culture. But when you take back your ownership of what your culture is, you won't appropriate others because yours is so beautiful. Right. And there's space for all of them. Um, and white folks don't even realize like, Damn, I didn't realize, like, I do have culture. Mm-hmm. But the way, as insidious as it is, the way white supremacy works, and I typically call it dominant culture, um, the way it works is to tell us that we don't know anything. Like, you're, if you're led to fairies, <laughs> right, and the Celtic cross for a reason, like, you probably need to look into that. Right. Go look into your family line. But instead... What usually happens is I'm going to show up in this yoga spaces. Everybody's wearing bendies. I'm going to wear a bendy. Right. Um, people are tattooing um, dream catchers on their thighs. I'm going right. to do it too. And <laughs> right. it's like, what is your cultural practice? Right. And when you start to peel that back, because yours is beautiful, you, you start to honor and respect other people's mm-hmm. and also appreciate your own. And like I said, white folks miss that because America doesn't tell white folks to do that. Mm-hmm. It's like, you didn't have a history. You're American. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite... Wait, since I'm on a little soapbox here. Just go, girl. (laughs) This is your time. One of my favorite things is, you know, when people argue, like, even with the NFL, oh, that's un-American, you're taking a knee, and all of these things. That's not patriotic. I'm like, imagine being a person in a black body whose ancestors built this country, right, Um, and being told that you're unpatriotic. Yeah. Especially, like... We're in Mount Pleasant right now. So if I were to drive and see an oak tree, I know that black bodies have hung at some point from that tree. I also know when that black body hung, the blood had to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. So what do you think fertilized that tree? That if you cut that tree open, it's got years and years and years of wisdom and knowledge that came from my ancestors. And you want to tell me that I'm not patriotic enough because I didn't stand and put my hand on my heart because mm-hmm. that symbolizes patriotism. Yeah. Whereas it's like the soil that buildings are on right now is the soil, the blood of my ancestors. There's you can't get more patriotic than that. Right. Like you just you can't. Right. Yeah. Yes. So. No, that's very valid. Very valid. And I've never thought of it like that. I um I had this whole tangent the other day, and I, I'm sure my husband was like, oh, my God, she's, <laughs> she's doing it again. Like, you're always thinking so deep. So, you know, in South Carolina, there are certain laws to protect trees. Um, certain trees, I think it's the oak. You can't, not the oak. It can't be bigger than your hands before you can cut it without permission. Okay. The oak trees are protected. 
But again, black folks know that the oak trees are the stronger trees. So if a body was lynched or hung, it was done on the oak tree. So then imagine now there's legislation that protects the oak trees. So are we protecting the oak trees because we care about the environment, Mm -hmm. right? Which we can't care too much because we keep building and drilling and And all of these things. And wearing paper masks. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But there's laws to protect these trees. And then from a black person's standpoint, it's like you're protecting these trees as reminders that this is where our bodies were hung. Mm -hmm. So how, and I, I really believe like Charleston has a way of um, telling a story and then people have a way of remembering the story and being taught the story differently. Mm -hmm. So when I see those oak trees, I do see them as beauty, but I see them as ancestors because there's a wisdom there. Um, Especially if you can get really quiet around one and watch like a little gentle breeze. It's Mm -hmm. almost like it's whispering something to you. Yeah. And are we protecting that because it's wisdom? Are we protecting it because... Right the symbol of what the oak tree means here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, we got deep. No, that's good. (laughs) This is so good. I'm so, I mean, I'm really grateful that you are open like this. And I remember when the first time you and I talked and I was like, well, what if I said, it was Carter and I sitting there and I've used this example before. And I said, what if I say the wrong thing? And your daughter's so beautiful. What if I say the wrong thing? And you said, if you opened up the cabinet and you dropped a can on Carter's foot, would you say you're sorry? I was like, yeah. You were like, okay. I really enjoy talking to you. And you give me grace. And you let me be that girl that's like, I have a stupid question. If I want to ask questions, mm-hmm. is that rude? It's not rude. Um, And honestly, most people are willing to answer your questions. Delivery definitely matters. Um, Context matters. And I always try to remind people relationship matters. So if if you have no relationship with this person, I mean, absolutely no one, none, but you're like, (laughs) there's an Instagram now called Karen's Gone Wild, if you didn't know. Um, and, And there's like tons of videos of Karen just like, hey, why are you walking your dog, right? Um. That Karen mm-hmm. doesn't happen to know that person. So there's no relationship there for them to build trust and be like, oh, Karen's just concerned that I'm walking the dog versus Karen's being racist. Right. Um, so I always tell people, like, pay attention to relationship first. If you're not in relationship with someone that lives a different life or lifestyle than you, um, ask yourself why first. And especially for folks that show up in white bodies or white presenting bodies, I always try to remind them to um, if you're talking to a person of color, especially here in Charleston, a, a black person, um, make sure they're not in a position of service. And I say that because, <laughs> so another one during my training, I'm like, think of how many black people you've interacted with today. Five, at the grocery store, the cashier, the mail person, like all of these things. And those people are all in positions of service where if you were to say, hey, can I ask you something really quick? So is it like a black thing to eat watermelon like and fried chicken? Um, that cashier is going to be like, first in their head, they're going to be like, oh, hell no, Karen didn't. <laughs> but they also know that they cannot lose their job. Mm-hmm. They're in a position where they still need to take care of themselves and their family. So they may answer you and their response is going to be either very guarded or like, ma'am, I don't know, or very respectful because right. I'm, in a, like, I'm in a position where I could be threatened. And mm-hmm. a lot of people don't realize that is the privilege part of it. If I say... That was fucked up, but you just asked me, right? Mm-hmm. Karen could get upset and be like, 
Well, I want to speak to your manager. You can't talk to me like that. Or I was just asking a question. And I think people don't realize that when, when you ask a person of color in a position of service, the first thought is going to be, is their job going to be threatened? Mm-hmm. The post office person can't just say whatever to you. Your cashier can't say whatever I can't, to you. I mean, I just can't imagine. I mean, I'm, I'm, I believe it happens, but I'm like, are people just... Yes. Gah. They are. So me working at a YMCA. So the, um, the YMCA I worked at was on what we used to... It was north side of town where all the rich white people live. Um, and so I'll never forget. I worked with the kids. So we would take the kids outside and before everyone could go outside, we're like, oh, everybody needs sunscreen. So we're rubbing down sunscreen. And it was she was an older woman. I'll never forget. Her name was Jill. I think she was like 54. And she was like, um, why don't you ever put on sunscreen? And I was like, because <laughs> I got permatan. And like we kind of laughed it off. Um, but let me see. That was 2004. And she, it was like, for me, I was like, it's, it's 2004. Like, yeah. you, don't, you don't have a concept of this already? And right. like you're old. So right, 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 right. You should know like something. Um, but even there, like I had various experiences. We had, um, a little boy, I forget his name. And he came and sat next to me and he put his hand by mine and he goes, teacher, why is your hand always dirty? And mine is clean. Hmm. And I knew like, he didn't mean anything by it. He's a child. Mm -hmm. He's stating what he observed. He's not stating it like to dig like adults do. Um, but moments like that never change. And so I'll, I'll have conversations with people and they're like, well, you know, my child is just, they're just too young. I don't want to take away their innocence to have this conversation. I'm like, how old is your child? Oh, he's 13. Right. 13. (laughs) So he can tell you about Fortnite. (laughs) He can run up your debit card on Amazon, but he's too old to have a conversation about racism and how that's going to Mm -hmm how he's going to perceive the world because of that. Whereas right at the beginning of COVID, my kids, their friend they've played with for years, decided to call them a nigger. And people are like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. And part of me battled, if I share this with people, folks won't believe me and they'll be like, oh, she's trying to get attention. If I don't share it, people will honestly believe that we are post-racist society. Um, but my children literally had this experience and this is going to change them for the rest of their lives. So did, I'm like, I didn't fight them. I'm no. like, I'm like <laughs> befuddled. Um, did you address it with the mother? Um, so the mother and I had like messaged each other before on Facebook. So I messaged her. I got no response. Um, again, the loyal person in me, I'm also a Tara, so Okay, fight and protect. So is John. (laughs) So I was like, I told my husband, I was like, you have to go over there and talk to the parent because I'm going to jail if I do. So, (laughs) and he's like, my husband's extrovert, so he's uh, he's like, okay, fine. I don't know if if you know if I need to, but I could also see in him like it's very uncomfortable because now he's a black man, and if he goes and says something that she feels uncomfortable with like, now what position is that going to put him in? Mm. Can we just blow it off and act like nothing happened? But now we also have these two children that are like, so we can't play with our friend anymore. And we have to explain why. And, and we didn't, we didn't tell the child he couldn't complain anymore. The mother said, well, my son will never come back over there as if we did something to her. Right. And that, and not like I've been, I've never been in that situation, but to me, that seems like how you're talking about like systemic things. Like what an, what an opportunity for learning. Mm -hmm. Right. And she shut it down. Like she was like, we don't use those, we don't use that language here. 
Okay. I'm not well, somebody knew, somebody but, was using it somewhere. Right. Somebody <laughs> said it. Right. Um, and she's like, it had to be another kid. And I'm like, lady, yeah. first off, they're right here in my front yard. This is a window. This is me sitting in my yoga chair watching them. Mm-hmm. There was two, like three kids, him and my two kids. So right. what other kid? But okay. All okay. right. Right. And I understand, like, I can understand you're not ready to have that conversation or you don't know what to say. Or then you're like, man, you know, maybe I said this, you know, unconsciously or consciously. And my child heard that and now they repeated it. But the context in which the child used it was like, you lost at the game. And then you said, well, you're a. Wow. You knew what the hell you were saying. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now, like, what do you do? But then also as a black mother, how do I raise my children to understand this is why people use that word. This is the history of that word. And just because someone said that against you does not mean you now hate. Like, we don't... You're a good mom. Why, why do you not, like, yeah, we hate. No, we don't hate because... And, and that's what I try to teach people, too. We can talk about racism all day long. We can talk about all forms of oppression. And the reason we have to talk about all of the forms is because if you've ever been an oppressed person, why would you then take and put oppression on someone else. Because if you do, that doesn't mean you want freedom. It doesn't mean you want liberation. It means you just want control. So if, whether you're you know, black or white, whether you're cisgendered or and heterosexual or um, trans or non-binary, if you have experienced oppression, why in the fuck would you want that for anybody else ever? And sometimes, um, and this was, this was, um, a hard pill to swallow for me even because my children are still young but learning like a, a good friend of mine she's a teacher in Charlotte um, teaches a class about parenting for liberation and I'm like oh it can't be that bad my kids are free they do you know and she reminds you like right off the top the, your first oppressor was your parents and when you think of that um, and how often we like don't do it because I said so mm-hmm. right like that's a form of oppression. Adults think we have the answers more than children do. Mm-hmm. And we don't let them be a part of their own process. We don't let them educate us because, well, I'm older than you and society says I'm the boss, so you just do what I told you to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have to start reckoning with that, like <laughs> all the layers of everything comes out of like, who have I then oppressed? And how have I oppressed myself, right? Because society creates things and tells us all the time that women can't say or do this. But then you show up in spaces, how have I done that to other women? How have I judged other women for only being a stay-at-home mom? Or how have I judged other women because she had a baby by C-section versus, you know, vaginal birth in a hot tub with like all of the lights and like Mm -hmm. the mother glow, like unpack all of the ways that you have oppressed other people and how you have been oppressed. And then to start peeling back all of those layers and finding freedom and liberation is like, I know what this feels like for me, and I want everybody to have this. Mm. Like, I even want children to have this, which is very hard Mm -hmm. because kids are great mirrors. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, yes, I don't believe in, you know, harming children or doing these these certain things or trying to control children. And then sometimes it just feels easier to be like, please go in the room, sit down, get away from me. And then you're like, but the harm that I'm going to cause them or the harm that I experienced as a child that now in my adulthood, I'm still like, Mm-mm, I still don't like oranges because my mother made me. Like, right, right, right. Like you have right. The, we, as adults, we start unpacking all of those things at some point if we're willing to, right? Um, and then we don't want that for them. I'm just like looking longingly at you. I'm like, mm-hmm, <laughs> this makes sense. So it's very interesting. And kids will remind you too. Yeah. You said you weren't going to yell anymore. And it's like, 
Yeah. <laughs> I did. I did. I they hold you accountable that. for sure. They do. And they don't forget anything. Nothing. So you make no promises. I'm I like, know. we'll see about that. Yeah. You promise. No, I said, we'll see. Yeah. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Well, I, I went, as we come to wrap this up, I know we could talk forever mm-hmm. and maybe we will another time. I want for you to share, um, about your, your studio, your space, your mission. I mean, I feel like you've given us so much rich information. Um, but just a little bit for people that don't know anything about your space. Okay. Um, so the first thing I'll say is um, it's Transformation Yoga Studio. We are on King Street and Market. Um, definitely intentionally now, but when I was looking at spaces, it was not intentional to be downtown at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am grateful for that. <clears throat> and um, Transformation Yoga is the only Black-owned, veteran-owned, woman-owned studio in Charleston. Um, and I'm grateful for that. And also, um, I say that because although we serve, and I'm working on renaming this because our mission typically is we serve marginalized, underserved, and underrepresented communities. Um, and that means a lot of people are underserved. A lot of people are un, you know, unrepresented. A lot of people are out on the margins. Um, but... I got the opportunity to listen to Ruby Sales, and she mentioned that, who says we're marginalized people? We're essential people. It's society that pushes us out on the margins and says we don't matter. So that's why I say I'm working on Mm -hmm. rewording that. But um, the biggest question most people ask, can white people come? (laughs) I'm like, "Uh, yes. We couldn't be an inclusive studio for everybody if white people weren't allowed. Um, We just hold very specific classes as well that are like, this is for folks that belong to the LGBTQ community. So Mm -hmm. they have a safe, or I don't want to say safe, a brave space for them to practice their work. We have and hold specific spaces for black folks to come together and be like, listen, we need to talk about this Cardi B thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, you know, why it's empowering and why it could also be harmful. Mm -hmm. Um, So we hold spaces in different ways. Um, We teach lots of workshops, hopefully meaningful workshops, where we address anti-racism and anti-oppression. All of our classes are taught from that framework. So even, you know, when children come in for the children's yoga classes, it's like, um, which I know this probably would drive lots of teachers insane, especially the Ashtanga yogis, I say with air quotes, um, where you're used to having that structure and it's like, okay, kids, you guide us in yoga. And they're like, what? Mm -hmm. Um, Because there's a freedom about people starting to practice liberation. um, And so creating a space for people to do that um, really matters. And so we hold workshops, we hold classes, um, we encourage people to, as you shared, rest, because that's that's not normal to people. Um, mm-hmm. And people don't realize like how high-wired we are oh my gosh. and conditioned, like, go, 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 My go. husband and I went to um, a marriage counselor. We've been to several. But this last one, she was like, I was like, do we need drugs? Like, you know, <laughs> she's like, well, you're you, I think you guys need to take naps. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. You know, yeah. like she was like, you need to rest. Like mm-hmm. we don't give enough energy to the fact that like we need to sleep. Yeah. I mean, I'm like the worst, so I mm-hmm. can appreciate you saying that, but keep going. Yeah. Um, and that's like one of the things in, in classes, I can't tell you how many times I've taught classes and mothers have cried in Shavasana because they're like, this feels so good. And I also feel guilty for laying here for 10 minutes. I should be up doing this or I should be up doing that. And it's like, no, you're fine mm-hmm. in this moment. So like one of the pleasures I get is just like someone 
being willing to take a position of rest and for me to come and like just like a mother, like just tuck them in a little mm-hmm. bit more and like give them an eye pill and be like, oh, just stay here, baby. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see them move from like this to like, uh-huh. And uh-huh. then eventually they do it so much. Like, yeah. <laughs> they're just laid out and snoring. It was like, how long was that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we teach classes like that all the time. Big on restorative yoga. Lots of, um, a lot of our work. Yes, it's, um, it's yoga and yogic philosophy, um, lots of movement, but there's also so many other ancestral and cultural practices we bring into it. Um, we've yet to do it, but some drum circles and cool. like just bringing in your own ancestral practices mm-hmm. um, because every every single person has a cultural and their culture has rituals and experiences and if we just would reconnect with those and honor them like oh cool she's got that celtic cross or you know they wear (laughs) they wear a kilt or whatever and i can honor that because you know in my culture we put a plate in our lip or you know um and being able to honor and really see people's differences um and be like that's so cool that's not what we do but that's so cool and Mm -hmm. like just embracing all of those that's what we're wanting to create and right now Transformation Yoga is working on um, building community in a way that is unseen in Charleston to a lot of people. Um, and I say that this also from like a marketing standpoint. Yelp, by the way. So if you hear this Yelp, sue me. <laughs> but um, like they call all the time like, oh, your competition is doing such and such. And I'm like, they're not our competitors. Right. Like society already tells us we have to be in competition. Like we're the best studio over this. We're just doing things differently. Mm-hmm. And so if people come to us and they're like, we want a hot yoga class. Yeah, we don't do hot yoga, but we can tell you who does. Yep. And it's okay because there's space for all of us right. to do what we do in totally. the way that we do without it being competition. Yep. And so our goal now is like to build our community um, in depth and w- like spreading out to where if I were to go to Columbia, if I were to go to North Carolina, um, and I'm like, I'm at Transformation Yoga. Somebody's like, oh, we know them. Come on in. Like we do the same thing. Like right. just being able to really have community in a way where we show up and support each other. Not not because we occasionally hit like and do the same things, you know, via right. social media or whatever, but actually so- showing up in community where it's like um, one of the things that gets me with like, the COVID that experience that we're in right now, studios are shutting down. And imagine if there was like a coalition or a council of just yoga teachers or studios here where it's like, hey, our studio friend, whatever, is, you know, they're on the verge of closing. Can everyone contribute $2? Not saying it's a long-term, right. but being willing to show up and not be like, yay, my competition's out. Right. Um, being able to show up in that way is what we're trying to create now um, by building just building relationship. Mm-hmm. I'm like, listen, I got you. Okay, your dog died. We'll send flowers or a card yeah. because we care and because this experience belongs to all of us versus being like, well, I have nothing to do with it. Right, <laughs> right, 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 right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, and now I know right now you guys are not open. No. So um, do you have any foreseeable plans or are you just kind of following with life? Oh, a mixture of them all. So, yeah. um, we're going to start offering some virtual things. We need it. Our community needs it. Um, definitely a lot more in agreement um, workshops. We've, even with once COVID kicked off, we have been working nonstop um, still with community. We regularly hold space for um, this organization in Berkeley County um, that serves like young parents um, 
as so they can like learn to care for themselves so they can care for their children. Mm-hmm. We've been serving them. We've done quite a few things with AFA, um, Alliance for Full Acceptance. We've done a couple things with other LGBTQ groups. Um, so we've been going nonstop, but we're going to open up and do more virtual things that other people in the community can like show up for and engage in. Definitely way more conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes you just can't have a, a conversation like this in a yoga class, right? Like, we're having this conversation and be like, no, and downward dog. Right, right. right. Second. Remember <laughs> right. where we were at. Like, right. Um, yeah. And so having those conversation pieces and even, like, just space to be like, hey, yogis, we're just going to meet up at said restaurant and either dance or eat. Because, right. you know, we're all yogis and we say we don't like food, but yogis eat i mean like i like food a lot and snacks <laughs> yeah <laughs> so a lot more stuff like that um tell people tell our listeners where they can find you uh website your instagram handles <laughs> hiding you can find me hiding um, <laughs> reading books <laughs> definitely um so my personal instagram handle is um at kine.co um and trans um transformation yogas is at transformation yoga sc south carolina Awesome. Um, and that's our website as well. So okay. transformationyogasc.com. Sc.com. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Thank this you. was wonderful. Yeah. I really, really, I'll be honest. I, when, before I was told Lindsay, I was like, I'm a little nervous. Like, what if I say the wrong thing? <laughs> Lindsay was like, just listen. I was like, okay, I can do that for once. I can shut my mouth. Um, but this was really wonderful. And I really appreciate you taking the time and have, sitting down and just being with us. So thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys, as always, so much for listening. Um, If you liked this, please share it with your friends, rate us, review us. We do these podcasts because we're interested in the topics of conversation and we know you are as well. So as always, thank you for listening and we'll see you soon.